uh, Ben is at Freed Hardman's lectureship, and so he's asked me to fill in. I will not be addressing anything that involves restoration. Uh, I'm going to leave that for him. But instead, what I want to do uh, is turn to the life of Jesus. Now, I spent three quarters on the life of Jesus last year, and, and there were a lot of subjects and a lot of events in his life that I had to exclude for time's sake. And so what, what I want to do is revisit one of the stories from the life of Jesus that I did not have time to address. And it's a story you can find particularly in Matthew chapter 12. That will be our focus text. Matthew chapter 12, between verse 22 and 45. And it's the occasion on which Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul. reason I want to go to this text is because it is quite theologically rich. There are some uh, subject matters in this particular text that leave us a lot of questions. For, for instance, in this text, you, you have reference made to the kingdom of God and, and this, that the, the casting out of demons is a sign that the kingdom is here. You also have in this text uh, this issue of demon possession, leaving us with the pondering question of, does that still happen? And of course, there's this great um, conversation about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that causes us to wonder, is that a sin that still occurs? I may not be able to address everything related to those topics tonight, but this is a significant passage that often feels complicated and often gets overlooked. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, and if you will read with me, we're just going to read verse 22 through 32 at this time, and then we'll spend some time examining it and what we can take away from it. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what I want to do tonight is walk through this text and consider some of the significant things that are being said and taught in it so that we can have a greater understanding of some of the difficult passages that appear here. Now, Jesus in this text is being accused of working for Satan, essentially. But before we get to the accusation, let's set up some context. See, Matthew's account of this story, of this event, 
it begins with Jesus healing a demon-oppressed man. A demon-oppressed man who was both blind and mute. And how do you, th- I mean, the, the question you first have to start with is, how does this healing, this exorcism, relate to the accusation and conversation that will follow? It's very interesting because this particular healing slash exorcism ignited an interest in Jesus' identity. The whole subject matter is really, who is Jesus? Because the people are amazed, we're told, in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 12. They're amazed, and they're pondering out loud, can this be the son of David? In other words, this miracle caused a great many people to consider the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's very interesting. Because anytime the Pharisees felt that Jesus was getting attention, they felt like they had to do something. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that's what ignites this conversation, this dialogue, and this accusation, is the, is the, the issue of Jesus' identity. Different Jewish groups had different ideas of what a Messiah would be. Many viewed the Messiah just as another prophet or a priest or a king. The common people, the average everyday folk, seemed to focus on David as a warrior and king, as one commentator said. So the idea of him being a replica of David is what they most often thought about. Could this be the son of David? That's what they were wondering. And it's very interesting. I'd never thought about this until I I was uh, studying this particular passage. But David has an association, quasi-association, with exorcism. The only person that... uh, Oh, I shouldn't say the only person but one of the few people in the Old Testament that has such an association. It's not a a true exorcism in the sense of what Jesus does, but if you were to journey back to the book of 1 Samuel, and you were to look particularly at David's kind of introductory story, where he's this shepherd boy who's been summoned to Saul's palace, because they needed someone to play soothing music when this harmful spirit came upon him. And we're told that David, when he played the lyre, when he played this music, this harmful spirit would leave Saul. In this case, with Jesus, he's removing an evil spirit from someone. And so it's not an exact replica of each other, but it is very interesting that this exorcism that Jesus conducts, this casting out of an evil spirit, is causing people to connect the dots between him and David, who was recorded as having helped a harmful spirit leave King Saul. Just an interesting little tidbit to throw out there, and to help you understand this identity issue that's happening. These people are looking at Jesus and going, hey, he may be more than we thought he was. And like I said, any time that happened, the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, felt like they had to intervene somehow. And so as you look at the text, you'll find out that the next issue to arise is, 
Where does his power come from? We're dealing with an identity crisis in the sense of what people or who people thought Jesus was. Where's he getting this ability? Because the thing is, the Pharisees can't deny that this evil spirit just got cast out. But they can cause people to reconsider where Jesus got the power from. And so according to the Pharisees and the scribes, if we were to include Mark's account, Jesus' ability to cast out demons is evidence of his empowerment or his affiliation with Satan. They claimed in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24 that it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In Mark, in Mark's account, chapter 3 and verse 22, they go so far as to say that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul. Now, who is Beelzebul? The name Beelzebul means Baal the prince or Baal the exalted, or I should say Baal of the exalted abode, or even Lord of the house. Now that name Baal, which you might hear pronounced Baal more often than not, was a significant deity in the Old Testament. Not a true deity, a false deity, a false god. But he was worshipped by the Canaanites. And the worship of him oftentimes... uh, bled into Israelite religion and caused a lot of problems between them and God. There is this one deity mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. He's the god of the Canaanite city of Ekron, and he is named Baal Zebub. His name means Lord of the Flies, actually, but it's believed that this Beelzebul, is a derogatory derivative of that deity mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. Baal, Zebub, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2, Baal, Zebul, is the basis of the Beelzebub that we know. And it seems to be uh, an effect have become by this point in Jesus's life simply an alternative name for Satan. Now think about it. The one false god that the Israelites struggled with the most most, became an identifying name for he who is considered an opponent of God in Jewish faith. So it's somewhat not surprising that that identification with Satan happened over time as the Jewish people returned from exile and reestablished their monotheistic religion associated with Yahweh. So Beelzebul is essentially a name that's become associated with Satan because it was formerly associated with the chief deity that the Israelites kept fleeing God for. Now, why, why did they accuse Jesus of being affiliated with Beelzebul? Well, ultimately, it's not because they have evidence that Jesus is associated with Satan. Instead, it's because they're attempting to undermine him in order to regain the allegiance of the people. The people are turning to Jesus because he's doing these miraculous, amazing, God-oriented things. He's doing things that no human being can do, and so he's winning their attention and their affection. 
And the religious leaders can't stand that. The religious leaders are in place because they want power or because they think they are religiously superior and they don't like that somebody is invading their territory. So since they could not deny that the miracle happened, they attempted to discredit its source. You see, the purpose of the accusation is more important than the accusation itself. Their aim was to destroy the reputation of Christ and his popular acceptance among the people, as one commentator said. It may not be a true accusation. They may know that what they're saying isn't true, but if it can cause him to be discredited, they will have achieved their objective. You see, politics has been around a long time, hasn't it? And why is this particular accusation a big deal? It's because it's the equivalent to an accusation of sorcery. And that's a serious charge under Mosaic law. Under Mosaic law, sorcery merited the death penalty. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 18 says, You shall not permit a, to permit a sorceress to live. Additionally, the rabbinical teaching recorded in Mishnah Sanhedrin 7 verse 4 says, These are executed by stoning, and among the list is the sorcerer. So this is a big deal accusation because it's, if proven true, an accusation that merits the death penalty as the consequence. So you can see how the Pharisees and the scribes are working to achieve their agenda to discredit Jesus and possibly even to remove him from public um, access. But while the Pharisees and scribes associate Jesus' power with Satan, Jesus said that his ability to cast out demons was evidence of the availability of God's kingdom. Look at how Jesus responded to this accusation in verses 25 through 28. Knowing their hearts, he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And then verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus indicated that his ability to cast out demons was evidence that the kingdom of God was presently available. Now, this confuses some because they believe the kingdom either didn't begin until the day of Pentecost or won't begin until the second coming. And I think one of the, the things that makes this passage important is because it helps us understand the kingdom a little better. See, the Bible indicates that God's kingdom was inaugurated at the incarnation of Jesus. This is evident from the fact that the primary message of Jesus' preaching was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you have a passage like Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. This is after his temptation and, and his baptism. And he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the earliest days of his ministry. And he's already proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark's gospel presents him, uh, presents him as saying in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, 
We're told that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Some people got so enamored that they wanted him to stay in their town because his teaching was that powerful and his miracles were that amazing. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus responded to that plea for him to stay by saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus declares in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, that his purpose was to teach about the kingdom. And that's what he did. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 tells us that Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The point is that from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was preaching the arrival of the kingdom. And his miraculous ministry, according to what's said in Matthew chapter 12 regarding this exorcism, his miraculous ministry was confirming the presence and the availability of the kingdom. But we have to also admit that the Bible indicates that the present manifestation of God's kingdom is his church. If you go back to the great confession in Matthew chapter 16, on that occasion when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to that beautiful confession by saying this, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 18 and 19. Particularly, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here, Jesus interchanges the words church and kingdom. He uses them as synonyms. And Peter would use those keys, which is a figure of, of a speech for the authority to open something, he would use those keys on Pentecost and also at the house of Cornelius by preaching the gospel. So it appears, based on Jesus' response to Peter, that the kingdom is, is currently comprised of his church. And the Bible, one other thing it says about the kingdom is that God's kingdom will be consummated at the second coming. You know, the Bible refers to this time of history that we're in right now as the present evil age in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. And we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that it's in this present evil age that Satan is the god of. Satan is the god of this age. In other words, God has not made his final move yet. That means God's kingdom, as one preacher said, has already come but it has not yet completely come. We're in an already but not yet type of scenario, which can be hard to wrap our minds around. But this is kind of evident when you look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew chapter 25, particularly verse 31 through 34, where this day of judgment is depicted on which the goats and the sheep will be separated from one another. Look at how it's described. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If the kingdom is already present, how is it something we inherit? There is a not yet aspect to the kingdom. So the question becomes, how, do, how are we to understand this already but not yet aspect of the kingdom? It's already present, but it's not yet completely fulfilled. There's this one little statement that appears in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5. In the midst of talking about those who have once been enlightened but have fallen away, the author of Hebrews says, those who have once been enlightened, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age of to come. They have tasted them. The age to come. Did you notice that? Remember, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 refers to this as the present evil age. Meanwhile, the author of Hebrews is saying that those who have been enlightened by the Word of God have tasted the powers of the age to come. As one preacher said, we can taste the power of the age to come, but we cannot feast on the full banquet of it yet. Let me put this in a more modern metaphor. Let's say you love Disney World. You love all things Disney-related. I, I know there are some people in this congregation that love Disney World. You may go to the Disney store, if we had one. One of the greatest heartaches of my life is we lost the Disney store. That was a free Friday night entertainment for my kids. But you can go to the Disney store at the mall and it tastes like Disney. It feels like Disney. You can go to Disney on ice and it tastes like Disney and it feels like Disney. But nothing compares to being at Disney World. It's not the same. It's just a taste. It's just a flavor. It's just an inkling of what it's like to actually be at the park. We currently live in a present evil age, but even in this age, we can taste the kingdom of God that is coming in its final fulfillment, in its consummation. But one day, this present evil age is going to be no more because the day is coming when Christ returns. And look at what is said when Christ returns, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 through 26. It says, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The kingdom of God, inaugurated at the incarnation, because Jesus spoke of it as something that is at hand, and his miracles confirmed that the kingdom was upon them. The kingdom of God, presently available and presently able to be entered through the church because Jesus said, I will build my church and give you the keys to Peter. But even though the kingdom is present, even though the kingdom is available, there's still something to be inherited and something to be de delivered over. I think the way we need to understand the kingdom is this. We are not waiting for the kingdom to come. It is already here. 
What we are waiting for is the last day when Jesus will deliver the kingdom back to the Father. And when that day comes, the opportunity to enter, enter the kingdom will have expired. Right now, the kingdom is available for entrance. There's a day coming when that time to enter will cease. That means that right now is the only guaranteed time in which God's kingdom is available for you to enter, and the only way to enter it is through the waters of baptism. So I think it's significant for us to understand the kingdom, to understand that we're not waiting for it to open its doors. The doors are open now. But we are waiting for it to close its doors. After all who have been welcomed into it, have entered. And so we need to understand that right now the kingdom is open, but there's a day coming that is going to be closed. And so we need to seize the opportunity if we haven't already. And I think it takes this passage in Matthew chapter 12 to help us to understand the presence of the kingdom currently because of what Jesus said regarding the casting out of demons, giving evidence that the kingdom is upon us. But you know, that's not really the biggest theological statement in this passage that catches people's attention. Really, the biggest statement in this passage that grabs people and they focus on is the statement about blasphemy against the Spirit. So let's spend some time with that tonight. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? The word blasphemy is an Anglicanized form of the Greek noun blasphemia. And that word blasphemia derived from two Greek terms. One is blapto, which means to injure, and the other is feme, which means to speak. So blasphemy can simply be defined as injurious speech, kind of like slander. In fact, the terms blasphemy and slander are used to translate blasphemia in the New Testament, depending on which translation you use. See, if you turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, do that with me real quick. I don't have it on the screen. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, you're going to have mention of either blasphemy or slander, depending on which translation you're using. If somebody has the New King James, would you read that for us very quickly? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, New King James translation. The New King James uses the word blasphemy. Thank you, Phil. Would somebody read it from the English Standard Version? English Standard Version uses the word slander. The words are used almost interchangeably in certain texts. You can find in, in various translations how, how they get used that way. Blasphemy at its core, just blasphemy the word, is, is equivalent to slander, some form of injurious speech. Now that we need to get a little bit more specific. By its very definition, blasphemy implies a sin of the tongue. However, it does not necessarily imply a sin against God. I can blaspheme you and you can blaspheme me. Any form of injurious speech directed against another person could be considered blasphemy. But blasphemy against God occurs 
when his existence or his deity is denied or demeaned. And let me show you a couple of examples of this in Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at the first two verses. 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes these words, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Bringing, up them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now I know this text says the way of truth will be blasphemed rather than God, but here's what I want you to notice. Peter said that there will be false teachers who will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. He then indicated that because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I mean, they're, they're bringing in false heresies, which is compromising the way of truth and leading to blasphemy, but it's interesting. It's interesting that there's a connection between the false teachers and blasphemy, and the connection is that some of the false teachings promoted denying the master who bought them. It appears that Peter equated a denial of God's existence and or a denial of his involvement in salvation since his, he's referencing the master's redemptive work in the idea of having bought them. So it seems that Peter equated a denial of God's existence and or a denial of his involvement in salvation as a form of blasphemy. Then if we go over to the book of 1 Timothy and we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, there's another reference to blasphemy here. This text says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the pre prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, the, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, it's obvious in this last sentence that these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, have blasphemed. And Paul wants them to learn not to do that. Based on the context of the verse that precedes that, they blaspheme God by rejecting the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul instructed Timothy to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he wrote, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And that's where he, he uh, brings in Hymenaeus and Alexander. He seemed to indicate that a rejection of the faith led some to a spiritual shipwreck. If that is the case, then a rejection of the faith, which implicitly denies God's sovereignty, appears to be another form of blasphemy. Then we get into another one, another unique example, but this one's Old Testament. It's in the book of 2 Kings. In chapter 19 and verse 22, in a little prophetic, or in, in, a, in a, a, a prophetic wisdom literature style passage, God speaking about King Sennacherib said, Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. Here in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 22, King Sennacherib is accused of blasphemy by God himself. To give us context of how he did that, you have to go back to the 18th chapter of 2 Kings. 
King Sennacherib is besieging Judah. And he sent messengers into Judah who ridiculed God for his inability to protect them. He belittled God via his messengers as an inferior deity who will not be able to stand up to his power just like the gods of the nations he already defeated. Look at what he said beginning at the end of verse 32. The messengers on behalf of King Sennacherib said, Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Evah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? King Sennacherib, via his messenger, is saying, your God's just like every other god. He can't stand up to me. I'm greater than your God. He's demeaning and belittling the God of Israel. And that's why he gets accused of blasphemy. And based on this situation, we can deduce that an exaltation of self above God and a demeaning attitude toward God are blasphemous. That's the basis of the Jews' accusation against Jesus at his trial that he committed blasphemy. Because in John chapter 10 and verse 33, they declared you to Jesus, they said Jesus, to, to Jesus, you being a man, make yourself God. They're accusing Jesus of having belittled God by making themselves equivalent, he and God equal. But the, Jesus could say that because it was true. See, what we find is that blasphemy in its, against God in its strictest sense is a verbal sin predicated on a denial of his existence or a demeaning of his sovereignty in some fashion. That's what blasphemy against God is. So that helps us distinguish blasphemy from blasphemy against God. But the text we're dealing with is blasphemy against the Spirit. How does that differ? Well, blasphemy against the Spirit, it, just like against God, is associated with denying or demeaning the Spirit. One thing you need to understand, and the reason people care about this passage so much is because they see in it this idea of a sin that can't be forgiven, which we're going to get to at some point. And then they wonder, can I commit this sin as well? Is it possible that I can commit a sin that I can never be forgiven of? So let, let's process this for a moment. Really, to understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we must first acknowledge that this is the only place in all of Scripture where it is referenced. There is no other passage in the entire Bible that talks about blasphemy against the Spirit. Therefore, the context of this particular event, this particular story, must be our basis for determining what it is. Since this was one that the Pharisees had committed— or at, least we're dangerous, or at least we're dangerously close to committing. So we have to look strictly at this account, this event, to determine what blasphemy against the Spirit is. And I think it can be said that blasphemy against the Spirit is associated with denying or demeaning the Spirit. See, in response... Hold on. You have the Pharisees declaring that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebul, 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus responds by essentially saying, or essentially showing that he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God. So notice that what happens here is that the Pharisees are associating Jesus' miraculous abilities with Beelzebul instead of with the Spirit. So that's why it appears that blasphemy against the Spirit is associated with verbally and publicly denying and or demeaning the Spirit because they're associating the Spirit with Beelzebul, with Satan. In this situation, the Spirit was demeaned, particularly by attributing his miraculous activity to Satan. The Pharisees were saying that the miracles done by the Holy Spirit were performed by the power of an unclean or evil spirit, if you want to say it that way. So they had blasphemed, they had belittled, they had demeaned, they had ridiculed the Holy Spirit by doing this. Christian apologist Kyle Butt said it this way, Even when faced by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, the Pharisees were, in essence, attributing Jesus' power to Satan and claiming that Jesus was Satan incarnate instead of God incarnate. It is this and nothing else that our Lord calls the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So demeaning, ridiculing the Spirit in some fashion, that's blasphemy against the Spirit. But it should also be noted that this is not an isolated incident. Mark's account of the same event appears in Mark chapter 3 and verse 30. And there's a unique phrase in here worth noting. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and who, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That phrase, for they were saying, is a reference to the Pharisees. And what's interesting here in Greek grammar, they were saying. The Greek grammar here utilizes the imperfect tense, which is a verb tense that denotes a sustained or a continuous activity. In other words, this was a habitual action and a habitual attitude of the Pharisees. This isn't the first time, nor is it the last time, that they said something like this. Now, we only have one other recorded instance of such an accusation in Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 34. There, Jesus cast out a, 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 the demon-oppressed man who was mute. He's not mute and blind. So this may be a completely different instance. But in verse 33, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, let it be known, this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, and the story we've been studying is Matthew chapter 12. So, it appears we have two different instances of a, of a casting out of a demon that caused somebody to be mute. Because they're both in the same gospel. It's not like we've got this in two different gospels. This is the same gospel. And once again, we see another occasion where these Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, are accusing Jesus of being able to do this by the power of an evil entity. So what we have here, based on these two stories, 
And based on Mark's use of the phrase, they were saying, which indicates it was a continual activity, what we have here is a deliberate and persistent rejection and belittling of the Holy Spirit. You see, not only is blasphemy against the Spirit a verbal denial or a demeaning of the Holy Spirit, it also involves a deliberate and continuous attitude. So the question now becomes, based on these two definitions that we have, blasphemy against the Spirit is associated with denying or demeaning the Spirit, and blasphemy against the Spirit is associated with a deliberate and persistent attitude. Can we commit that sin today? You know, there are those who say we cannot. There are those who say, no, you cannot blaspheme the Spirit. And they contend that the circumstances in this story in Matthew chapter 12 are the reason you can't, because the circumstances on which the sin is described occurred during the age of miracles, and the age of miracles has ceased. See, Paul indicated that there would be a time when the miraculous manifestations of the Spirit would no longer be needed. Remember, Jesus, in casting out this demon, performed a miracle. He did something that you and I can't do and no one else can do today because 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 and 9 says that miraculous gifts such as prophecy, speaking in tongues, and divine knowledge would eventually fail. They would eventually cease. They would eventually vanish away because they were partial revelations rather than complete revelations. As a result, Paul says in, in verse 10 that miraculous gifts would no longer be necessary once that which is perfect has come. That which is perfect is a reference to God's inspired word compiled in what we now refer to as the New Testament. Since it is the source, or I should say the Bible, since it is the source of information for the man of God to be complete, as 2 Timothy 3 says, and it's the source of everything that pertains to life and godliness, as 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says. So based on Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 13, it's obvious that he expected the age of miracles, which existed for the express purpose of confirming God's message, he expected that age to come to an end when God's self-confirming word came into existence. So proponents of this position that you cannot commit that sin today, they appeal to the fact that blasphemy against the Spirit occurred during the age of miracles. And you can't blaspheme the Spirit's miraculous operation anymore since he's not operating that way now. So that's what those who say you cannot commit blasphemy against the Spirit contend. But then there are those who contend that you still can commit this sin. And they base it on the fact that you can have that attitude towards the present work of the Spirit manifested in the Bible. See, Peter declared in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So although the Spirit no longer operates through miraculous manifestations, it does still operate through the Word of God, which it ultimately authored. And so some contend that although no one can 
today commit the eternal sin in precisely the same way as did the Pharisees, one can still commit that sin by rejecting the New Testament evidence that undergirds the Savior's credibility and principle. And so thereby they have the same attitude and the same actions as the Pharisees. See, proponents of the yes, you can commit this sin, they simply say you can do it by rejecting the evidence of the Spirit, by rejecting the Word of God that the Spirit brought into existence. Obviously, both positions can't be correct, so which one is it? Y'all want to put it to a vote? Maybe the issue is not so much whether or not one can be forgiven, but whether or not one will seek to be forgiven, will be willing to repent. The reason I pose this question is because there are some other passages that speak in the New Testament about some sort of unpardonable sin. Not in the same way as Matthew 12, but in a general way. So if we go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, it tells us that there is a sin that leads to death and that there is a sin that does not lead to death. These two statements lead some to conclude that there are types of sin that can be forgiven and there are types of sin that cannot be forgiven. But that does not appear to be what John is saying. Remember earlier in the same letter, in, in the first John chapter 1, if you go to verse 7 and 9 in particular, John says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that a great place for him to put in parentheses, all but this one? And then he goes on in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He could have put a parenthetical statement in there. He could have put a, a, a disclaimer of some sort, but he didn't. By saying that all sin and all unrighteousness can be purified by the blood of Jesus, John implies that there is nothing unforgivable for the one who walks in the light. In other words, John indicates that those who are in Christ are forgiven of all sins. Therefore, the sin unto death in 1 John is not a specific sin for which it is impossible to receive forgiveness, but rather is any sin for which a person will not take the proper steps demanded by God to receive the forgiveness that he made available. It's an issue of a willingness to repent, of a willingness to be obedient to the means of salvation. There's another passage that some think refers to an unpardonable sin, and it's Hebrews chapter 6. Now, you may recall, we appealed to this passage, particularly verse 5, a moment ago, to talk about tasting the goodness of the powers of the age to come. But in its full context, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, says, For it is impossible. That's the word everybody gets hung up on. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now let me just point out first that this is a passage that discredits the once saved, always saved concept. 
But notice that the issue in this passage is saying that it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be restored, not to be forgiven. It's saying, or it's making a reference to the hard-hearted nature of those who have made a deliberate decision to reject the faith despite having once believed. And so, as one author has pointed out, the message in Hebrews 6 is not that those who fall away have committed sins that God will not forgive. It is that their hearts have become so hard that they will not repent. It's kind of like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. So we can conclude that if a person is willing to repent, then he or she cannot be one of those who have fallen away, according to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. And here's my point. Based on these unpardonable statements in Scripture, it appears that an unpardonable status is associated with a persistent hard-heartedness that is not so much preventing God from forgiving the individual as it is preventing the individual from taking the necessary steps to seek forgiveness. In the context of blasphemy against the Spirit, it's worth noting that only Jesus' enemies were in danger those guys, those Pharisees, those scribes who had never professed any allegiance to him, and at least in the pages of Scripture, never do. Even in the first century context of the so-called eternal sin, an unbelieving, hard-hearted, and impenitent attitude toward God appears to be the ultimate basis for an inability to be forgiven. And something, and such an attitude is something one can be guilty of today. So maybe in that sense, yes, blasphemy against the Spirit can still happen. But again, the issue does not seem so much to be that you can't be forgiven, but that you've developed an attitude that is unwilling to repent. At least that's how I've come to understand it. And if you want to debate it, see Ben Hogan, because this is his class. I thank you for your time and attention tonight. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up there. I was going to jump into whether or not demon possession happens. I'll save that for another time. Um, keep, you, keep, you, keep you wanting more. Let's close out with a quick word of prayer. Lord God, we are so indebted to you because you have provided the means for our sins to be forgiven. Help us never to forget that. Help us never to help us never to take advantage of it in a disrespectful way. Help us to always appreciate it and help us always to respond to it accordingly. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation offered to us and for the sacrifice Jesus was willing to make to achieve that. May we never take it for granted. And Lord, help us to live out a life that reflects that appreciation. Help us to always be willing to humble ourselves and to repent and to seek forgiveness, knowing that you are a merciful God. We thank you for that, Lord. And it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.